Amen. Amen. How you doing, church? Got to get settled here. This is a wonderful setup here. Uh, I do believe in marrying up. You know, as we were driving here, uh, I was asking the boys to pray for me. We have two children. Uh, my wife is right there. Tanya, would you stand up? Wave. Do you? That's my beautiful wife, Tanya. Um, I did indeed marry up, and as I, we were coming here and we were driving out of the neighborhood, uh, I was commenting on how beautiful their mother was and uh, how daddy married up and, and God blessed him. And then as, as I'm saying that, I realize in blessing me, God hosed her. But um, you know what? That's fine by me. Anybody else get an amen? Yes? Good. All right. So good to be with you tonight, church. Uh, so many people that I know, so many people that I appreciate. I've grown up in relationship and uh, known for so many years. As Pastor Fred said, we planted the church uh, from Christian Life Center. Uh, this is seventh year, so it's a year of jubilee. You are now free from us. Um, but we just so appreciate you all. We pray for you. We talk about you. Uh, I love the Me Shows, but I love so many other. I love the Nowatneys. Uh, I love the Lees. I love the Godwins. They're in Williamsburg. Well, hallelujah. We'll see him tomorrow. Um, but just, uh, I, I even love Kevin Tully, who I have refused to be friends with on Facebook for going on two years now, because he scares me. And then finally, I believe uh, Kevin messaged me and said, hey, it's me, Kevin. And I was still not sure, and I still think we're not Facebook friends, but we're real friends. That's what matters. All right. Well, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. I want to preach a little bit tonight. I believe God has given me a word for you, church, um, praying for you and praying for this time that we have together. I'll bring greetings to you from Christian Life Center, our governance team, uh, pastors Tom and Gail Wells, our founding pastors, and so many other wonderful leaders who love you and pray for you. Um, very excited to be here with you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Are you with me? Now, I know the tryptophan has sunk in. I know it's run its course, and I know you went back for more, and you had a couple pies, and you went back for more, uh, but I preach so much better, and I preach so much quicker uh, when you give me a couple amens, so that you can call it insecure, you can call it, you know, selfish, whatever, you, but I need some help tonight. Amen? Amen? All right, Ephesians, I'm one of those young preachers who needs to be constantly encouraged because I'm afraid. All right. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others, but God. Come on, somebody say Amen. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. God, I thank you that it is indeed living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. 
Lord, I pray that you would use it to mold us, shape us, make us more into your image. God, I thank you that you've sent me on assignment tonight. I believe that there's a prophetic message. I believe there's a prophetic impartation. There's a heart that is to be embraced by people here. And so, Lord, I pray for ears to hear. I pray for minds to be open. And, God, change us, mold us and shape us, make us more into your image. In Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said amen. Amen. Well, we just did celebrate Thanksgiving. Hallelujah that we live in a country that celebrates gluttony. A, 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 a hallmark holiday that is wrapped around a bird and we all rejoice. And uh, you have different things. Can I have some, what do you like, to, what is your favorite dish on Thanksgiving? Can I have some, some hands here? Sweet potato casserole. I'm going to talk about sweet potato casserole in a little bit because it has no business being on the front side, the entree side of the meal. Am I right? That is a dessert that snuck its way up into the front of the line. But yes, I agree. Sweet potato casserole, delicious, delightful, divine, amazing, but still a dessert. Anybody else? Hand in the back. Deep fried turkey. If you can survive the frying of the turkey and you don't explode it and somebody else, indeed. I had a deep fried turkey for the first time in my life about five years ago. I could still taste it. It was amazing. Mr. Lee, mashed potatoes, the staple. You always know what you get with the mashed potatoes, right? Until you find out somebody used, instead of mashed potatoes, they use cauliflower. Satan, get behind me. Jesus. Stuffing. Mm. Stuffing is the best at one in the morning when you wake up and you already have acid indigestion, but you're sure the stuffing will heal it, right? Another one? Macaroni and cheese. Not the craft. The craft is for a snack. The box is for a snack. Craft, uh, that has its place. But macaroni and cheese at Thanksgiving has, if it's cooked by Pastor Vanessa, it has like a little bit of cheese, a little bit of macaroni, and like five blocks of cream cheese. Oh, it is so good. Well, we, uh, when we had Thanksgiving, we went to the Wells home, and there was a smorgasbord laid about. And it's amazing to watch people walk through the journey of what am I going to get, but more importantly, what am I not going to get? Because you don't want to get to the end of the line and think, oh, I should have done this. Oh, if I had just been thinking, I would have done that. Oh, I don't know what I was thinking when I did this and I put this on the plate. And it's amazing. There, were, there was ham. There was turkey. There was sweet potato casserole dessert put in the front side of the meal. There were uh, potatoes. There were all kinds of things laid out. There was cranberry sauce and there was a salad. I can't tell you. Well, I can't tell you. There were about 27 people there. About three of them had salad at the end of the line. And they were all in my uh, particular family. Uh, Pastor Fred was very kind. Uh, my wife is vegan. Uh, we usually adhere to a plant-based diet. I am vegan. I adhere to a plant-based diet. But by, uh, I, I submit to the law of grace. So I had some ham. I had some turkey. It was delicious. Uh, I had some sweet potato casserole, the non-vegan kind because it was much better. Um, there, my wife made a delicious paella. Anybody ever had paella? So good, right? Paella is delicious. She made it vegan style. Um, we still have a lot of paella if you want some. Uh, because at the end of the line, nobody took their life. They take the fork full. It's like, I should have some. And I'm being a good example to my children. Here, have some. And they put a much you know, larger helping on the child's plate. They're laughing because they did this. And you have a little taste of the paella. What I want to do with you tonight is I want to have a woulda, coulda, shoulda conversation with you. 
I want to have a woulda, coulda, shoulda conversation with you. You understand that God has given us opportunities. God has plans and purposes for each and every life. And I'm going to have a woulda, coulda, shoulda conversation with you that the only time I believe it is beneficial to have such a conversation before you make a decision. Before you go in a direction, before you take an action. And if you're here tonight and you're thinking, man, this would have been great if I'd had this message yesterday because <laughs> I made some decisions and I took some actions and I went in a direction. I believe God has grace for this very moment that he wants to... I believe he wants to sow this concept. I believe God wants to sow something into this church. I believe God wants to sow this principle, something into each and every one of you as individuals as well. It is a, it's a dealing, and it's a process to become one who is both aiding and abetting heaven's will on earth. Is it not? The Bible calls us strangers and sojourners. Are you with me? Help the preacher preach. I'm insecure. Help me. But this is what we're called to do. You are called to both aid and abet the will of heaven here on earth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul declares that you are God's fellow worker. That's crazy that God would say, you are my fellow worker. That's like LeBron James coming up to me and saying, Christoph, you're my starting point guard. You're insane. <laughs> I'm barely six feet tall. I'm white. I can't dribble and look up at the same time. But you are my starting point guard. Okay, but that's what God does. That's what Paul speaks to. Is you are God's fellow workers. You are good enough not to just be around him. You're good enough to work with him. And he goes even further. He says, you are God's fellow worker. You are his field and you are his building. You are his field and you are his building. And that's a word for your life. That's not a word for your neighbor. That's not a word for Pastor Fred. That's not a word for Nate Nawani. That's a word for you and your life. You are God's fellow worker. You are God's field and you are God's building. What does a field do? A field produces fruit. What does a house do? What does a building do? It gives shelter. It gives care. I love watching all these things that you are doing as a church. You're providing shelter, perhaps not physically, but emotionally, spiritually. You're giving finances. You're giving of yourself. You're giving of time. You're giving of those. You are creating yourself. You're saying, God, I'm coming in line with what you have said, and I am your building. I'm going to be that for my city. I'm going to be that for these people. As you can tell, I'm having a hard time staying still. I don't preach from a chair. I don't believe in chairs. I, I preach probably much better from a segue if I wouldn't kill myself. But the fact of the matter is that you are called to be God's fellow worker. And there are so many different ways to go about it. There are various voices. There are a great many giftings and different ways to do things. The massive, can I tell you today, even as our economy is the way that it is, even as the election went the way that it went, whether you believe this or believe that, I don't really care. But can I tell you that there is massive need in our world today? Do you know that? Hurricane Sandy ripping through the Northeast, massive need in the world today. I try not to watch the news because it is so discouraging. Because I know about everything that's going on in the Middle East. I know about everything that's going on in Afghanistan. I know about everything that's going on over there. It's so discouraging. It's so depressing. There is massive need everywhere. Can I tell you, the only thing that outnumbers and outruns the massive need in our world today is the massive ability and provision in heaven. And not just in heaven, but in your life. Because you are God's fellow worker, you are God's field, and you are God's building. And so oftentimes when we have that revelation, we say to ourselves, all right, where do I start? 
Who do I begin with? What's the opportunity? What's the situation lays before me? We, we start having these conversations with ourselves and we start laying out plans and we think about, well, what could I do if I did that? And what should have happened if I'd done this? And what would be happening if I did that? And we have these would have, could have, should have conversations. And oftentimes we're left in the same place as we began. My assignment this week, and I believe, is to deliver a message to a church and to a people, I believe, who are in a certain place. If you are taking notes tonight, uh, go ahead and write down Genesis chapter 28. If you're not taking notes, you can repent. God made your skin writable. Grab a pen from a neighbor and write it down. If you can write backwards, you can do it on your forehead. But Jacob finds himself, the Bible says, in a certain place. I believe there are people here tonight, I believe this church, praying for you for years. But over the past month or so, I've been praying for you, God, what do you want me to share? I believe I'm here not because I'm a good preacher, but because I'm a conduit. And I want God to flow through me. The, the, the testimony of my life is not all of the degrees that I have. It's that I've stayed by the stuff. And I've stayed by the stuff of Jesus Christ. I am what I am, but by the grace of God. And that he has worked through me is a miracle in and of itself. I was born and raised in Williamsburg, Virginia. The few, the proud, we're like the Marines. We just don't move around as much. I was uh, in the Fife and Drum Corps. I was in that for eight years. I worked at the ships in Jamestown. I know a lot of people. A lot of people know me. My father was a professor at the College of William Mary for 36 years. I took his class when I went to William Mary. It was awful. <laughs> After the first day of class, this has nothing to do with the message, but I just want to burn time. He, uh, he told me, he pulled me aside, and this is my father. He made me. And he came to me and he said, son, it was an upper-level writing class, and so it wasn't in my major because I don't believe in speaking clearly or writing. And he said, son, I think you should take this class pass-fail. I said, why? He said, because I don't think you're going to do very well. <laughs> I said, all right, Dad. I did not take a pass-fail. I worked my tail off, and I got an A-. minus." God is faithful, and I can hack into their system for you if you're a college student away, Mary, as well. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But you see, Jacob was in a certain place, and he didn't realize it. I believe there are people here tonight. I believe this church is in a certain place, a setting your course place tonight. I just pray Holy Spirit would even minister right now as I say these words. You are a no God is here, but you haven't seen him place yet. You see, God is not just existential. He doesn't just exist. God is experiential. God wants not only to experience you, even as Pastor Vanessa closed worship tonight, but God wants you to experience him. God did not come from heaven to earth because he needed a holiday from perfection. God came from heaven to earth to purchase the opportunity to change your life, to redeem your life, to bless your life. I believe that there are people here tonight that you're in a God-ordained, uncomfortable place. Jacob finds himself in a certain place in Genesis 28, and he takes a rock, and he uses it as a pillow. Is anybody here tonight that you feel like the most comfortable thing that you have to lay your head on is a rock? I believe that you are in a God-ordained, uncomfortable place. And I want you to know the steps you take, you take today will affect your authority and your influence in the world tomorrow. I believe the steps you take today 
will affect your authority and your influence, not just in the world, abroad. Not in the world in a CNN sense. Not in the world in a region sense. I'm talking about even in the world in your wife's sense, husbands. In your children's sense, parents. You see, God wants to give you authority and influence. And I believe the steps that you take will lead you there. And as far as where you go, as I was praying for you, I want to challenge you. Don't go where you're needed. Jesus said the needy you're going to have with you always. Please, please, please don't go where you fit. It's one of the things I love about Pastor Fred. Granted, the size of his torso makes it so he doesn't fit lots of places. But Pastor Fred rolls up into all these types of different situations with different kinds of people, and you think, he doesn't fit here. But there's a grace in that. There's an anointing in that. There's something heavenly about that. Because Paul writes about that. There's neither Jew nor Greek, nor male nor female, nor bond nor sleep, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. Can I just get real personal for a minute? There's not blue states, there's not red states in heaven. There's not Republican, there's not Democratic. Jesus did not wake up the day after the election and say, no! Oh, I missed that one. What are we going to do now? And right wing, left wing, center, set hike, whatever you believe about your political, you know, standings or what have you, Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and he is the Lord of Lords. Now, I, amen. Now, I don't believe that that means you should go to the booth and you should write in Jesus and you're like, I'm going to vote for Jesus. That'll show them. You do the next thing, you pull, I pull something. I think I just did. But people freak out about the craziest things. As if Jesus isn't Lord. As if God is not in control. As if he isn't sitting on a throne in heaven. Because I believe, honestly, when we come down to it, I don't know if we really believe that. And we start having these woulda, coulda, shoulda conversations. And we put too much of the onus. And we put too much of the responsibility on us and on our lives. Now, I do not believe that we should just sit back and do nothing at all. But I do believe that it's not the government's responsibility to tell people what's moral and what's immoral. I believe it is our responsibility as we are a city set on a hill that people, we don't need to legislate marriage. We don't need to legislate these things. We don't need to legislate abortion, all these hot topic issues. If we would give them the love of Jesus, if we would declare to them the city of an, on a hill and actually give them an apple pie somebody in a few weeks, you actually play with their kids, you're not going to have to convince them right or wrong. They're going to see it. They're going to feel it. They're going to exist in it because you have loved them and you've come down to their place. You've come to their house. Oh man, I'm starting to sound like Jesus because Jesus came down from his place and bless somebody. You didn't have to tell these people right from wrong. They just follow Jesus. <sighs> Don't go where you fit. Don't go where you're needed. Please, please, please go where you're called. Go where you're called. There are so many churches, great churches, with so many great people who literally, they run to the latest fads. They run to the, these things that are, they want to fill the same void because it's attractive to our culture. It's attractive to our day and age. It's attractive to be on this side of the political realm. It's attractive to be on that side of the social justice scene or whatever. But what I think we need to do as a church and what 
we need to do as individuals is fill the void that God has called us to. And if we would take care of business in our sphere, in our locality, and you guys take Newport News, I'm going to preach tomorrow in Williamsburg, and they're going to take care of their Williamsburg, and I'm going to take care of my Williamsburg, all of a sudden, Jesus starts to win everywhere. People get to be blessed. Make no mistake about it, I believe this is a church of purpose. I believe this is a, a church of destiny. And do you know why? Because you are a people of purpose, and you are a people of destiny. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, he talks about the glorious church. Now that sounds so good, but it's amazing what that word literally means. That word glorious means beautiful. It means powerful. It means incredibly effective and with never a, a, the, uh, an inkling of being able to shrink back. It's only growing. It's only getting better. But do you understand me this evening that the church is only glorious when it's filled with misfits, mistakes, and jacked up people like myself? That is when it becomes the glorious church because they have been woven together. They have created this tapestry of heavenly and divine influence. Not because they're super gifted and Christy's incredible, although she was the one that was doing illegal things. But I want to question that for a moment because if it was illegal and you didn't get caught, is it still illegal, Kevin? I rest my case. <laughs> but it's the glorious church, and it's a good ride. Part of the problem of being a part of the glorious church, I believe, and I just want to share with you some, a heart issue, an impartation tonight, if I may, is that uh, we, can tend to be, uh, we can tend to compare. We can begin to compete with other churches other people, other good individuals, or people who are, you ever meet somebody who's a better Christian than you, but they're not a Christian? Am I the only one? You know, and you start to think, oh, but how am I better than them? And how am I, how do, how do I love people more than, they? oh, but they're, they're better than me. And they care more than I do. What is wrong with that person? <laughs> But the end result of your life, and if you're taking notes, please write this down. I believe the end result of every life is the sum total of activities God has planned for you. It is the sum total of activities God has planned for you, multiplied by his anointing, added to your obedience. That is the end result of your life. You see, the miracle is in the obedience. When Joshua rolls up to the city of Jericho... Is it a miracle that God brings the walls down? Or is it the miracle that for seven days, all of those children, holy children's ministry in Israel, all of those people were quiet when they were told to be quiet? Parents, which one's the miracle? That God broke down walls or that those people did what God asked them to do? I submit to it, the miracle is in the obedience of people trusting God. And do you understand that, that the way that they won that battle was different than any other battle they ever fought after that fact? Because it was as they crossed the river, they came to the other side, they were circumcised, so they could not fight, but God still had a battle for them. The men literally, physically could not fight. Do I need to paint a picture? They were in pain gentlemen, because they had been circumcised. Everybody with me? But God still knew that there was ground to be taken, and God still knew there was a battle to be fought, and so he set up a way for them to win. Do you understand that your life right now, church, you are in a setup? 
your life, you are in a setup. And then the miracle of God, the walls coming down is not the miraculous thing. It's are you going to be obedient to what God is calling you to do, who God is calling you to be. Obedience is less about deferring to God and more about trusting him. Obedience is less about deferring to what God says and more about trusting him. Now, as I said before, my wife and I, we are uh, the parents of two wonderful children. Asa is six and Jude is four. I was speaking with James and Rebecca. They are uh, happily expecting a a fourth. And um, hallelujah, God bless you. The concept of going from a man-to-man defense to a zone I'm sweating just talking about it. Asa has an incredibly, I mean, I, I tell my wife all the time, honey, they're leaders in their generation. He, there's no question in my mind. Jude is prophetic. He's a worship leader. He's going to storm the gates of hell, and Jesus is going to be well-pleased in all that he's going to do for the kingdom of God. Asa can talk me under the table. He's going to be an incredible preacher. He's compassionate. He loves to bleed for people. He loves to serve people. He loves to do He's sensitive. But right now, they just get under my skin. <laughs> all of those leadership qualities that God is going to use later are now just an irritation and a frustration. I'm just being honest. They're irritating. Would you just shut your mouth and listen to me? But Why? And I, as a parent, look at him and say, I just want you to be obedient. I just want you to do what I ask you to do. Just please, 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 no Christmas. I'm serious. You can't, you already bought the gifts. I'll take it back. I'll use it myself. You don't want them. I do now. But we have this picture of obedience, of just doing what God says. Just do it. Just go through the motions. Just be quiet and just do it. Let me tell you tonight that God made you. He knows you more than you know yourself. Hear me tonight. God made you. He knows you more than you know yourself. Turn with me to Psalm 139. Everybody who's freaking out about what just fell out of my Bible, I don't need it. (laughs) Psalm 139. Verses 1 through 14. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. Some people, that's good news. Other people, you're freaking out. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. That word there, when it talks about knowing, it talks about being acquainted, it's the same word in the Hebrew language as a husband knows a wife intimately. Everything, unfiltered. God knows you. He's acquainted with you. Verse 4, for there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You've hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Now, when I read this passage for the first time as a young believer, I started to get a little worried. Like the man is watching me, okay? Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, the implication is you're there. 
Even your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from me, but the night shines as a day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That verse there, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God knows you, church. He knows you're laying down. He knows you're getting up. He knows you're sitting down. He knows you're rising up. He knows when you're ascending into these places. He knows when you're making your bed in hell. And in the same breath as he says those things, he declares you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, that does not mean that sometimes you're fearful and sometimes you're wonderful (laughs) and you just kind of figure it out. It means that you are so awesome. This is what it means in the Hebrew language. It means you're so awesome, it's scary. God's opinion of your life is that you are so incredible, it's scary. God knows you. God understands where you are. And whether you believe that or not does not matter. Truth is truth not because you believe it and not because the majority believe it. Truth is truth because God established it. Why don't believe in gravity? I don't care. Jump off the building. Find out for yourself. But I don't believe in this, and I don't believe in that. I don't really care. And that doesn't make God insecure. Truth is truth because he established it. You are God's workmanship. Heading back to our scripture in Ephesians chapter 2. You are God's workmanship, his handiwork, his crafted vessel, his pride. You are his joy. Jesus went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. That is your life. That is your existence. But I'm imperfect and I'm sinful and I made bad decisions. He knows you're going down. He knows you're getting up again. He knows where you've missed it. He knows where you've made it. And guess what? You are still fearfully and wonderfully made. You are the pride and joy of God the Father. Oh, but I've wasted such a huge swath of my life. I wasted the first 18 years of my life. And I've wasted a lot of days in between there and here. But God isn't concerned about that. He's concerned about not what you do. He's concerned about who you know. He's concerned about his relationship with you. He's concerned about getting into your life. He has plans and he has purposes. Even as Ephesians says, he has good works prepared beforehand that you should walk in. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. I think we oftentimes as believers and followers of Jesus think, well, God's just going to do what he's going to do. I mean, if he really wanted me to do that thing, he'd bring a cherub down. It would flutter into the room and it would talk to me and had seven heads. But it would be pretty and it would be awesome and there would be smoke machines without the smoke machines. And it wouldn't be weird. It wouldn't cough. It would just be Jesus. That's so creepy. God is not creepy. He's calculated. And I'm all for visions. I just don't want any. First thing they always say, fear not. Don't be afraid. The implication is it's creepy and freaky. (laughs) But verse 10 of our passage, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That word workmanship means it's from the Greek uh, poiema. It's a product. Understand today, you are a product of God's faithfulness. You are a creation of his handiwork. You are God's workmanship. It has the connotation of something which is being made of fabric or like a fabric. 
I've never worked with fabric in my life, but I know people who do. And it's amazing how they crochet. Anybody crochet? Here's why I don't crochet. I would stab myself, and I would stab others. But as you watch people work, they take this singular strand, and they just start to put these things together, these two strands, and it's amazing. And before you know it, it's a scarf, or it's a, it's a thneed, and you can use it for lots of different things. Lorax joke, parents, good, okay. Uh, you know, all the, it's, you start to weave all of these things together. You take different colors, you take different fabrics, and you weave, and you put them together. And that's what God says you are. He has taken different situations. He's taken different circumstances, things in your life, and he weaves them together. People often accept the concept of a God who made us, but we have a harder time understanding that he is a God who is making us, who's involved with us. You are God's fellow worker, his field, his building, that he is weaving the happenings of our lives together, fitting us like a wonderful tapestry, some parts to our liking and some not so much. We like being the marionettes to his puppeteer. When you start understanding that he's a God who makes us, it damages our understanding of a God who is in absolute control. And that scares us and it makes us immediately afraid. We like being the marionettes because he's the one pulling the strings and it doesn't matter what I do. See, we like to just be able to defer to him because what does it matter? He's in control. Rather than trusting him because he's good and faithful. But where's the magnificent mercy in deferring? Where is the greatness of God's grace if we just hand it over to him without thought? And it's all throughout verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. It talks about the grace of God and the rich mercy and all of those things. And grace and mercy are paramount in this passage as they should be in our lives. Write in your notes, grace, mercy. And grace and mercy is a two-way street. It's not only supposed to be something that's for us. It's supposed to be something that comes from us as well. When you lose sight of God's fresh mercy and his sufficient grace, you've lost sight of him and his way, and you've replaced him with you and your way. Saul does this in the Old Testament. Saul is the first king of Israel. He's chosen by God. He was picked by God, by the prophet who never did anything wrong. Samuel said, yep, you're the guy. And Saul failed miserably because he lost sight of God's sufficient grace and his fresh mercy. And all of a sudden he thought it was all about him and he needed to do this for the nation of Israel. He needed to do that. And he replaced the goodness of God with his own preparations. Let me ask you a question tonight. What would you do with your life if you really could accomplish what God said you should in your life? If I could have the band come up. People cut short courses of action because of adverse circumstances. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. Well, it doesn't look like this, so I should do that. Well, I know what God said, but would he really want me to do that if I had to do this? Where would we be if Joshua had that attitude? What would you do in your life, church, if you could really do the things that God says you should be able to do? And I know you've been through circumstances in your life. I don't know many of you, but I know that I've been through circumstances. In a room this size, there are things and travesties and tragedies that you've been through and being set to the side and being forgotten and being downtrodden. But I want to give you a quotation from John Calvin. He says, all things have either come from the hand of God or they've passed through them. 
You are God's workmanship, which God himself has created. And he has good works prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. You understand, God has good things for you, church. God has good things for you in your life personally. When our wood, listen to this now, when our wood lines up with God's could, heaven's should is released on the earth. One of the things that irritates me about the Christian faith is you read about these incredible situations that people just stand in the face of fear, these enormous odds, and they just continue. I just want a couple where it's like, hey, this is when it went really bad. <laughs> this is where it was awful, and this is what we did. That's why I like Peter. Peter gives me hope because he's an idiot just like I am. That's why I love reading Paul when he starts to get frustrated and angry. When Moses argues for God, he knows it's God, but he still argues with God for two to three chapters about whether he should or whether he should not go. And Jesus is always calm. He's always cool. He's always collected. And most magnificently, constantly conquering. He is the consistent champion because he is God in the flesh. He is the word in the flesh. When our wood lines up with what God has said about us, heaven's should is released on the earth. You are God's workmanship. And I believe more than anything else right now, there are people here that you question God's affection for your life. You question not just maybe the affection issue, you can get past it because, hey, he's the everlasting father, he's good, but you really question the usability. The word of the Lord for your life is that you are God's workmanship, which God has created. And beyond him creating you, he has good works, church, prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Come on, I invite you to stand with me. We worship in this song together. Come on, it's a good word tonight.